Hello and welcome to another episode of Cracking Addiction with Philippe Narin and Fergal Armstrong. In the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we're going to be talking a bit about some of the boundaries that prescribers of opioid substitution therapy need to be aware of and how to manage boundary stepping, as well as some of the medico-legal considerations one should consider with opioid substitution therapy. So, Fergal, I guess a couple of questions, mainly around engagement and as well as setting appropriate boundaries with the patient. How do you treat a patient who refuses to engage with other services? And that is, the patient does agree to see you periodically for opioid substitution therapy, but has no interest in accessing any further services. Yeah, this is a, this is a very difficult and complex area. And I have to say that my views have changed as I've got more experience. And when I was younger, I used to say that a failure to engage with one element of a service was basically failure to engage with all elements of the service and they weren't engaging properly. Therefore, there was going to be a forced discharge. Thankfully, I have become a little bit older and a little bit wiser. And I take the view that any kind of engagement is a positive. Because remember, engagement in and of itself saves lives. And involuntary discharge from services significantly increases mortality. Um, you know, I, I can't remember the exact figures, but I, I want to say up to nine times within the first month after an involuntary discharge, that's the risk of death compared to background risk. Um, so I think it's really important that if on any level a patient engages with a service, that should be encouraged. And remember this, that, you know, just because a patient says, no, I'm not going to engage, that doesn't necessarily mean they're not going to engage forever. I mean, you know, there is, we, we do operate from a trans-theoretical model of change. And so they're basically pre-contemplative. But part of the skill of, of doctors and in particular people working in um, addiction medicine services is that they're able to deal with people who are pre-contemplative and over time gradually help them move from pre-contemplation to contemplation to preparation, then action, then maintenance. So just because you get a, a difficult non-engaging patient at, at the moment doesn't mean that that patient is beyond hope, doesn't mean the patient's beyond redemption, doesn't mean the patient is, or, or doesn't mean the patient should be denied services. What is your take? Very similar to yours, Fergal. And I used to get a bit irritated or upset when a patient would not engage with other services and I would be concerned about what would the patient's trajectory be like? Would a recovery be possible? But then I had a chat to a colleague of mine and they made points very similar to yours that at least I was providing a point of engagement. And even if the patient was not engaging in other, um, other services, just by maintaining status quo with me, being on opioid substitution therapy and having mm. some of their other medication issues safely managed and safely prescribed, the status quo is still far better than when they were engaged with me as a prescriber. And that's something I've tried to remind myself when I find a patient doing things that I quote unquote don't want them to do. I think it's important for prescribers to realize that we are part of the patient's journey. We are part of the patient's treatment service, but we are not yeah. all of it. And patients have different agendas and goals to ours. Yeah. And it's really important to make sure that we are trying to provide a service that's useful for the patient, but at the same time, trying to prescribe and be safe in our, in our practice as well. So I guess my philosophy is, is very similar to yours, Virgil. 
Yeah, that's true. I mean, patients have different agendas to doctors. And I think a key skill is the ability to be comfortable and sit in comfort with someone who's not doing what you want them to do. I mean, that's a, that, that took me years to learn. And, you know, the, the, the whole training around motivational interviewing uh, is focused on the idea that it's okay for patients to disagree with you and not do what you want them to do. It's okay. It's not your fault. And they're just not ready for it. Absolutely. Yeah. And I guess another question, which we've kind of answered already, uh, but I'll explicitly ask this time around, would you stop a script or de-prescribe a patient who is not engaging? And by that, I mean opioid substitution therapy. Yeah. Now, that, that's, that's a very difficult subject, right? So uh, just remember this. D discharging someone involuntarily from a service increases mortality, right? But unsupervised dosing potentially also increases mortality. So if someone was regularly attending my service and regularly attending um, the chemist, and I was getting reports, and, and even though they weren't attending any other service, so they were attending me and they were attending the pharmacist, and I was getting reports that they were presenting well, then I would probably continue that prescription. In fact, I definitely would continue the prescription. If they weren't attending me, but attending the pharmacist, and I was getting reports that they were okay, I would probably extend their prescription for another couple of cycles. But we know that, you know, in the, certainly in the case of uh, methadone, that once you lose tolerance, if, you've, if you haven't had your, your methadone, from, for, if you've missed four consecutive days in a row, by the fifth day, Officially, you've lost tolerance to methadone. And, and, you know, there's something similar going on with buprenorphine. So actually, would you, would you extend that prescription beyond the point at which they had lost tolerance? And I think the answer has to be no. You would have to bring them in for some form of reassessment. I would be very loath to actually just restart a script via the telephone from a, from a message from the pharmacist. Like, you know, Joe Bloggs has come back and he wants to restart his methadone. Can he please restart? I would probably draw the line at that. But it's, it's a gray area. So, you know, what, what's your thought? Similar to yours, if the patient is quite regular at the pharmacy, the pharmacist has no concerns, no complaints, no missed doses, I would extend the script for one, maybe two cycles, provided I have yeah. that surety from the pharmacist that the patient has been yeah. attending and has had some supervised doses in the pharmacy. If there's doubt, as in there's such a significant time period with whatever takeaways the patient has had that I can't safely ensure tolerance to opioid substitution therapy, I would be, like you, very reluctant to extend that script just because, especially if I can't see the patient, if we're doing this over the phone and we're relying on someone else's word, this is very dicey territory. But say, for example, if the scenario is someone who's on two takeaways per week and the pharmacist has said they've got five supervised doses, I'm pretty confident yeah. to extend that script. I'm not too concerned. But once we start to the yeah. four takeaways or five takeaways, that's where yeah. my comfort level starts to kind of be pushed, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and of course, with, with COVID, uh, all states and territories have had to react to COVID. And there's actually been national guidelines put out that actually we can extend the the number of takeaways. So in the case of buprenorphine, you can extend takeaways up to a month. 
And in the case of methadone, you can extend takeaways up to 13, 14 days. So, but it's always subject to a risk assessment. And this is where the, you know, the, the, you've got to balance the, the exigencies of maintaining someone on opioid substitution therapy, which saves lives, versus the risk of overdosing the patient, or for that matter, the risk of overdosing somebody else because of the risk of diversion. Absolutely. It's, it's a gray area and it's, it's an ethical dilemma, but in any ethical dilemma, what are the, what are the, what are the first two principles? First, do no harm, and the second principle, always do good. So doing no harm always overrides any other ethical principle. And in certain situations, giving or prolonging a prescription of methadone and buprenorphine can actually be causing patient harm, and you cannot do no harm. You cannot harm. Primum non knockery. First, do not harm. Not second or third, but first. And this actually brings me to another area that I was going to go to, which is the takeaway doses and how to manage that. You've yeah. mentioned the fact that with the advent of COVID-19, some of the takeaway regimens have been uh, loosened somewhat. But as you've also adequately mentioned, these are guidance documents only. They're not that you should, it's that you can. And the people that you would potentially give the increased takeaways to would be patients by definition who are very stable on opioid substitution therapy where we're happy that the patient will be safe on that extended takeaway regimen versus yeah. someone who you've just inducted over the last week it would be in my opinion foolish to immediately induct someone and give them 13 takeaways of opioid substitution therapy it is very unsafe yeah. highly dangerous and and i wouldn't uh recommend it. Would you, would you agree with yeah. that, Fergal? I, I certainly would. And the other thing is, you know, this, we're talking about, you know, difficult circumstances and, you know, you, stable patients don't cause problems. It's patients who are unstable, who are on the fringes of society and the fringes of your service. You aren't engaging with everyone else. They're the ones that actually are higher risk and they're the ones that you tend to get more requests for, you know, lax takeaway regimes and, you know, uh, you know the call to extend a script, in, in, you know, during a cycle of care. You tend not to get these problems with people who are truly stable. Absolutely. And I guess an extension of this, what's your opinion on takeaway doses, say, for interstate travel, family illness, or, um, lost scripts even, or yeah. employment issues? <clears throat> are there principles or guidelines you, you yeah. revert to when facing these requests? Well, every state and territory has its own written guidelines, but... I tend to follow specific absolute contraindications for me are if the patients try to harm themselves, if the patients had an accidental overdose, if there's evidence or risk of diversion, or if there is an absence of proof of storage. For me, those are abs or safe storage rather. For me, those are absolute contraindications. So if the patient's threatening suicide or had, a, you know, you just can't give takeaways. If the patient's had an accidental overdose in the last three months, absolute no takeaways. You know, if they're, if there's, if they're diverting or they're selling, you can't give takeaways. And that's for the sake of the greater good and the greater general public. And also safe storage. I mean, how many times have you heard? It's rare, but you know, you have heard of stories of children, you know, climbing into the top of the cupboard, drinking the lime green cordial and then dying. And that's for the want of safe storage. So really, those for me are the, are the red lines that I will not go into. Now, interestingly, <clears throat> a lot of guidance does not actually stipulate that use on top, heroin use on top, is an absolute contraindication to takeaways. 
What's your view on that? I know I've got a few patients who use heroin in addition to their opioid substitution therapy. Uh, they do have takeaways. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's that combination. We talked about stability to a degree. And it might sound a bit silly to talk about stability with someone who's using heroin as well. But it's yeah. one of those criteria where it's a risk-benefit analysis. And we talked about a grey area. This is one of those areas where it is quite grey. If you've got someone where you feel the situation is safe, as in they're on opioid substitution therapy, heroin use has decreased, overdoses have not occurred for some time, they do not use drugs alone, they have take-home naloxone at home, I guess the question then is, will this extra takeaway keep the patient facilitated in the opioid substitution therapy program versus if I de-prescribe, will that potentially increase the harms? So I think this is a risk classification or risk analysis each prescriber has to do for themselves. And yeah. we have to be comfortable with our prescribing at the end of the day. And there's no hard and fast rule with this. As you've said, Fergal, using heroin on top is not an absolute contraindication for takeaways. But at the same time, we've harped on for multiple episodes about first do no harm, prescribe safely. And we do know using heroin on top of opioid substitution therapy does increase the risk of overdose and death. So yeah. when I have patients who are using heroin as well as opioid substitution therapy, I ask myself, what am I trying to achieve? What am I trying to do? Would de-prescribing or stopping opioid substitution therapy potentially increase more harms? And how can I make this situation as safe as possible? And I think you probably would do something similar to that. Would you, is that fair? So I think, I think for me, use on top, I would, I would not say to someone you're using on top, therefore I'm going to stop your heroin. Sorry, stop your methadone or stop your buprenorphine. It's an opportunity perhaps to revisit the reasons why they're using it. And if they need to go up, I actually would increase the dose. But it is, I would probably look at the safety issue and probably cut down the, um, the takeaways. So use on top for me affects takeaways. It doesn't actually affect the dose and it may actually increase the dose. Would I stop takeaways altogether? I have done for some patients because I was worried about their stability. And for others, I, you know, I, I gave a couple of takeaways. Takeaways are seen nearly universally by patients as a punitive intervention. I actually view daily pickup or close supervision of pickup as a therapeutic intervention. I, you know, patients view it as punishment, but for me, it's not about punishment. It's about increased levels of support and monitoring because they have to go and see the chemist every day or every second day. And I actually have experience of patients who've actually done better when we've put the boundaries in and we've actually done takeaways. So it's, I think it's really important for clinicians to understand if, if you start viewing takeaways or, or, or rather daily pickup as a punitive intervention, you're going to end up in, in, with problems. If you buy into that patient belief that it's a punitive intervention, it's, it, it becomes so much more difficult. If you go at it from the, from the point of view of this is a therapeutic intervention that's going to improve your care and increase your level of safety, that's a whole lot easier to deal with. Yes, absolutely. I guess another issue to discuss is the management in the community of pain or acute pain in, in this mm. uh, population of patients who are using opioid substitution therapy. Yeah. What's your yeah. approach to dealing with acute pain in someone <laughs> who is by definition opioid tolerant and receiving opioid substitution therapy? Yeah. 
I mean, the commonest uh, presentation, the pain presentation I get for in the community for for pain is dental pain. So I tend to err on the side of caution, and I use um, uh, you know anti-inflammatories and paracetamol. But if you go into if and also antibiotics, that's that's my holy trinity of dental emergency work is antibiotics, Panadol, and ibuprofen. <laughs> But if you go into the, the, the principles of acute nociceptive pain management in the context of, of, of opioid replacement therapy, you know, you, you have to understand that opioid tolerant patients require higher doses of opioids for longer periods of time than their non-tolerant counterparts. So I would give endone on top if I thought there was an acute nociceptive pain that, that uh, wasn't responding to non-narcotics. I, would, I, I do give um, opioids, I do give endone. I'm quite comfortable giving short-acting opioids to people on long-acting opioid substitution therapy. I, I'm somewhat uncomfortable giving longer-acting opioids to people who are already on opioid replacement therapy. What, what's I your think take? that's reasonable. And I guess something that I get asked is, is it appropriate to, in the short term, increase the methadone or suboxone potentially to manage the pain. I also have mm. no problem mm. increasing uh, methadone or suboxone transiently as well to, to manage some of the pain symptoms. Bearing in mind, though, yeah. uh, that uh, the analgesic effect of opioid substitution therapy on a daily dose is likely to be inadequate to kind of manage the pain symptoms. So in hospital, we would split the dose to try and get the best analgesic effect. So one could increase the uh, opioid substitution therapy, but um, I think the pain effect or the benefit for pain would be somewhat limited. Would you say that's fair? Yeah. Yeah, especially when you're getting to doses over, you know, 60, 70 milligrams of methadone a day. You know, if, if you're doing daily dosing, uh, I, I tend, I, I, think, I think the advantage of increasing the dose is diminished. Again, you know, how do you do double dosing or, or TDS dosing of methadone in the community. It's especially if they're uh, unsupervised, it's, it's just not, it's not really tenable. Another question, I guess, to talk about, and this is something that will definitely push at most people's boundaries is management of psychological distress <laughs> and how to prescribe for psychological yeah. distress. And let me be really specific yeah. in what I'm talking about here, prescribing benzodiazepines <laughs> for psychological distress yeah. in someone who's on opioid substitution therapy. I guess my yeah. principle in this one is that I am very reluctant to prescribe benzodiazepines because it does increase the sedative load on someone who's already on opioid substitution therapy. It increases the risk of respiratory depression and it increases the risk of death. And I don't think any of those statements are kind of controversial at all. However, if one were to consider prescribing benzodiazepines and everyone is free to make their own clinical decisions. I guess principles I would consider when you were to consider benzodiazepines would be, what are you treating? How long are you going to treat the patient with benzodiazepines? Have a clear start time and a clear stop time. And I would not do ongoing scripts for benzodiazepines as well. If we're talking about say a situational crisis or acute grief reaction, I think most people would say two to three days worth of treatment would not be unreasonable if if you feel benzodiazepines are required for this situation. But months and months or weeks or weeks of benzodiazepines would be something I would consider reviewing if that was part of the prescribing regimen. Do you, do you think that's fair, Fergal, or do you have anything to add on top of that? 
That is fair. Um, but I, 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 sorry, and I have something to add. So the National Institute of Clinical Excellence on the subject of benzodiazepines has stated that once you prescribe benzos for more than four weeks, you're no longer actually treating the underlying condition. You're actually treating an ongoing new onset benzodiazepine dependency syndrome. So theoretically, you can literally stop and start a benzodiazepine willy-nilly at will for that, that four-week window. But beyond that, you're really not getting any therapeutic benefit for the underlying anxiety disorder or distress. You basically created something, a new diagnosis. So really, if the absolute, the absolute uh, brick wall stop for benzodiazepine, for new onset benzodiazepine prescribing, it's got to be four weeks. But, and I, I share your reluctance to prescribe benzos in longer term in, 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 my, in patients, you know, de novo. The second issue is that anxiety disorder, the first line treatment of anxiety disorder is actually CBT, talking therapies, distress tolerance, tolerance management, and then SSRIs. Benzos, and I think I read somewhere that specifically benzos have, no, have absolutely no role in the management of panic disorder. So knowing that, knowing that there's a brick wall at four weeks, and knowing that really the, the, the evidence-based treatment for, excuse me, the evidence-based treatment uh, for any anxiety disorder is not benzodiazepines. That gives me courage to basically say I'm not giving benzodiazepines. The issue, however, is, and I'd, I'd be interested in your views here. The issue, however, is we tend to see a significantly large cohort of patients who are already on significantly high amounts of benzodiazepines and OST. And they're used to using benzos to treat situational crisis. So how do you manage that? Because already on bucket loads of benzos and 100 milligrams of methadone, that's not unusual. So I try and provide a bit of education, psychoeducation, state the things you've already stated, talk about the risks of dependence and addiction with long-term benzodiazepine use, and also the risks of harm as well associated with concurrent prescribing of opioid substitution therapy and benzodiazepines. And then usually uh, with a bit of cajoling and a bit of discussion about my boundaries and what I'm comfortable prescribing, what I'm not comfortable prescribing, I usually talk to the patient about a potential weaning regimen uh, to come off their benzodiazepines while also offering other management strategies for their depression, anxiety, uh, or other mental health concerns that are causing distress. I try and refer to a psychologist for CBT. I talk about other medications that can help with mood um, and prescribe appropriately or refer to a colleague if I'm concerned I don't have the uh, an accurate picture and they might need to see a specialist for that, such as a psychiatrist. And usually with patients, and you talk about patients, Fergal, who are already prescribed benzodiazepines, a thing that I've come across is patients prescribed multiple variants of benzodiazepines. So long-acting, short-acting benzodiazepines, as well as opioid substitution therapy. And it's a situation... As well as, as, well as other hypnosedatives like ketiapine. Let's not forget no, about that. And <laughs> I, what I do practically is I convert all their benzodiazepines to an equivalent dose of diazepam. And there are uh, calculators available online to get uh, equivalent doses of diazepam. Stabilize the patient on diazepam for a while and then uh, 
progress to wean the patient uh, slowly. And there are support services, counselling support services to, to help the patient manage the wean as well, as well as seeing me regularly. If I'm concerned about safety, I do staggered pickup. So picking up every yeah. two days, three days, in certain number of days, depending on your risk assessment yeah. of the patient. You don't always have to do, say, a very tight pickup schedule, but it, for ease of dosing and ease of weaning, it probably does help to do staggered pickup just so the patient doesn't have to think too much about the weaning regimen. If you get the pharmacist involved, mm-hmm. it really helps with the weaning regimen. And that's usually my yeah. practice, uh, especially when the hypnosedative load is significantly high and my comfort level and my boundaries in prescribing are being pushed up against. And I think this is something that's important for um, prescribers to be aware of. It's important for us to tailor our intervention so the patient feels comfortable. But equally important is that we need to be comfortable about what we're prescribing. If we're staying awake at night thinking, is this patient going to die because of these medications that I'm prescribing? I think we need to review the medications and prescribe in a way where we're also happy with what we're prescribing. Uh, are you happy with, with those kind of tidbits there, Fergal? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, I think once you are confronted with a, a polypharmaceutical situation that's very, very dangerous, uh, you do have to rationalize the benzos and you do have to put in a weaning plan. And, you know, patients dread that word coming off weaning. You know, when, when you start talking about, you know, you, you know, you're on, ben, you're on opioid substitution therapy, you're on benzos, you've got to come off the benzos. Their immediate response usually is, well, I've been on it for years. Now, I think it's important for everyone to realize that as you get older, your tolerance to opioids and your tolerance to hypnosedative load actually decreases. So the same dose of medication that you've been on for years actually could be now enough to really put you into a very high-risk category and high risk of, of respiratory depression and overdose. Plus, you know, you add in one upper respiratory tract infection and literally, you know, you, you wake up dead. Uh, so, you know, the, the issues become more acute as you get, sorry, the issues become more risky as you get older, even though the levels of, of drugs have stayed the same over time. That's an important point to bear Absolutely. in mind. And I guess one of the, the last things that we should probably address in this episode today is managing challenging behavior and also potentially de-prescribing if we feel that the therapeutic relationship is no longer working for either party. How do you manage patients whose behavior is challenging maybe to you or to reception or other support staff and what's your approach to that and also i guess adding on from that if you've made the decision that you might need to de-prescribe because the therapeutic relationship is no longer working or there's some safety concerns what are your approach to to these difficult questions so i think my first approach is to never let situations escalate um there, there's very. There, I don't believe there is any evidence out there that patients who are stable patients are any more violent or aggressive than anyone else in the general public. Unstable patients may be maybe more of a risk, but there's always a a kind of an, a, an escalation process. Patients don't become violent immediately. There's always an escalation. I think if you can actually recognize the signs, have training to actually de-escalate and be prepared to actually engage in motivational interviewing and simply say, look, today, I'm sorry, I can't help you. This is not going well for you today. You can always come back tomorrow. We can always have another chat some other day. I know you're feeling upset today. 
let's reconvene. Um, I always also go back to my statement that I've only excluded three patients from my clinical services in my career in Australia, and none of them have been drug dependent. But there is a, there is a, a duty of care to our colleagues and, um, you know, it is absolutely unacceptable for our colleagues to be, to be threatened or to actually sustain injury. So if people have to be excluded, then they have to be excluded. What's your take? I'd agree with everything you said, Fergal. Uh, the main goal of all of us working in addiction medicine is to make sure our service is welcoming to patients and that we can keep people in treatment. That's the whole reason we're, we're doing this. And we know staying in treatment saves lives. So we should always have a high threshold before we consider taking someone off opioid substitution therapy because by definition that will increase their risk of mortality. So we do have to think about what we can do to assist the patient. But at the same time, we also have to be mindful of, of our boundaries and also the fact that we and our colleagues are treated in a respectful manner, just as we will treat our patients in a respectful manner. Threats, threats of violence, threats of other harm or actual violence are not to be uh, accepted or, or, or you know swept under the carpet. These issues need to be addressed appropriately. And usually, like you've said, Fergal, addressing things at the start, discussing behavior, behavior management, and making contingencies right at the start of treatment can very often prevent uh, things yeah. spiraling out of control later down the track. So I think yeah. expectation yeah. management is is very important at the start and then going from there. I couldn't agree more. I think the, the biggest issue, the biggest generator of violence and aggression is unmet Absolutely. Need. And the worst thing you can do is actually create the perception of that you will be able to meet a particular need and then not follow Absolutely. through with it. So, you know, if you are very clear at the outset that, you know, you will not be getting takeaways for so long, you will not be doing this for so long. And then these are the, these are the milestones that you have to meet to get X, Y, and Z. If you are clear up front with people, you avoid all of these issues. This is when you allow people to have the expectation of rapid takeaways, for instance, and then it doesn't happen. That creates anger. I mean, another issue is, is, is interstate travel or, or, um, or travel, you know, beyond the, the catchment area of your service. I mean, you know, people, people need to have very clear policies on how they manage these situations and they need to be clearly communicated up front to the patient early on in treatment because the worst thing that you can do is to hear is to say to someone, well, I'm sorry, I'm not able to prescribe for you if you leave your, your, your catchment area. And then they, then they, 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 they've had this expectation that's not met. They get very angry and then, you know, things, things get out of control. So you have to be able to understand the range of potential requests and you have to have policies to deal with each of those possibilities. You, it's not enough just to be reactive to patient requests and patient demand on a day to day basis, day to day basis. You really need to look at a holistic view of the care that you're prepared to provide. And you have to anticipate a wide range of clinical scenarios, which is why, you know, it's so useful to actually talk to colleagues about, about these issues, such as we're doing Absolutely. today. Absolutely. And I guess the final thing to potentially discuss in this, in this very long episode of Cracking Addiction that we've, we've uh, had today is, is de-prescribing of opioid substitution therapy. With regards to the practicalities, once you've made the decision that you will have to de-prescribe for a patient, 
What's your approach to to cutting down or, or managing the deprescribing scenario? So yeah, you've pinned me to the abs to the wall on this one, Philippe. And I, I, I absolutely hate deprescribing, but basically my approach is to put them onto daily pickup and then bring them down five milligrams a week. Uh, and then maybe once once they get to twenty, then maybe lower the lower the um the decrement amount, but basically a reduction every week down to zero on a daily pickup regime. Absolutely. And I think that's very similar to what I would do. So in the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we've covered a lot of different things about mainly boundary settings and how to maintain boundaries and how to actually create a safe environment, both for our patients as well as ourselves. So thank you very much for your attention on this episode of Cracking Addiction and bye for now. Music